three, two, one. Welcome to The Peaceful Truth, the podcast where we talk about everything from women empowerment, feminism, and everything in between. Thank you guys so much for joining me today. I also have a very special guest, Elaine Gomez. Elaine, thanks for joining me on today's episode. Yeah, no problem. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me here. I wanted to see, first off, I think... um, we know each other through our friend Mike. Um, how do you know our friend Mike? Mike is one of my <laughs> colleagues at my nine to five. Um, but how do you know Mike? So Mike is the director for a program that I got admitted to uh, a long time ago when I was in my doing my undergrad at Rutgers. So this program is called I three. It stands for High School Inclusion Institute, and it was inside the Information Sciences program at the University of Pittsburgh. So this whole program is intended to um, be like a like a stepping stone for under like minorities and underrepresented groups to have a, a an opportunity in like a graduate school and even like doctoral programs inside the information sciences field. Um, so that's how I got in it because I was an information technology major at Rutgers and Rutgers happened to be one of the top 10, uh, information schools in the country. So they're pretty up there. So the program just has a very good relationship with the major school of communications and school of informations across the country. So that's how I got in touch with him. It was, I was on the second cohort, so it wasn't the very first one, but the program was still kind of starting when, when my cohort joined in. So it was pretty interesting. It's, it's been running every single year since 2011. So it's been a while. That's awesome. Um, But it's grown a lot. Now they have, um, they even have students from the Caribbean that, that have come, not just in the United States. Um, and it's getting pretty good traction. So it was a, a really awesome program that opened a lot of doors for me. I always tell people that. That's really cool. That's awesome. Um, I think he's going to have uh, give me some more guests because apparently, I guess your peers are really awesome too. So he's oh, like, yeah. I just have endless people that should be on. So I'm like, give them to me. Um, so beyond that, beyond that program of how we know each other and have a mutual friend, can you tell me a little about about yourself and what you do professionally? Yeah, so um, I, like I said, I did my infor- my information science, uh, not information science, but information technology degree. So I would have gone into IT, but um, I just felt like I was a bit more creative and I could do more with my time. I just didn't picture myself being in a nine to five at like desktop support or something like that at like a pharmaceutical company, which is what a lot of people that graduate with that degree go into. Um, so I decided to pursue my master's degree in game design. So I went to the University of Southern California and that's where I learned the whole craft. So, um, that's what propelled me to be where I am now. So I'm a game designer at an independent game studio in Phoenix, Arizona. So independent studio, meaning we're a smaller team versus a very big team of like hundreds or thousands, like electronic arts or Activision or anything like that. Those big games like Call of Duty, that's like teams of hundreds or thousands of people all over the world. But for our team, it's about 20 to 30 people and we're all in the same office and there's two game projects going on right now. And I just happen to be in one of them. It's pretty fun. That's really cool. So do you kind of like working for a startup like that? I know I've, I have experience in working in different fields that are similar where it's much smaller on a scale, and I loved it. Do you like like working on that much of a scale? 
Yeah, I mean, it's what's cool about working for an independent game studio like that, um, or, or just a smaller studio, is that you get to really dive into more disciplines that you wouldn't be able to at a bigger company. So if I were to work at, like, for example, Electronic Arts, um, I would have a very, very specific role and very specific tasks that I would do every day because there's so many people and everybody has an expertise in a very specified thing. But working at Indie, even though my title is game designer, I have skill sets in like programming and design. So I'm able to tap into, for example, designing a system and being able to prototype that visually and then going back in the code and actually coding something up to be able to show it. Um, I've also done some stuff with like level design. So it would be like decorating and set dressing the 3D world. Um, and I can do that and also sit down with another designer and talk about like narrative. So how is our story going to be planned out? What is a player going to do at a specific point in our story? So I get to really dive deep into different aspects that I wouldn't be able to otherwise. And that's been really fun because it makes every day a little bit different. It doesn't, it's not boring at all there. I'm just doing the same thing every single day. So it's, it's a lot more versatile and that's what I really like about it. Cool. It sounds like a lot of good skills to develop as well. Um, so can you tell me exactly what it means traditionally, maybe to be a game designer? You mentioned you do a bunch of other things beyond mm -hmm. just that, but, mm -hmm. um, for girls that are gamers themselves that might be listening or, um, just women that just might be interested in hearing what exactly is game design? Like, what do you do behind the scenes? So, um, that's a really tough question. <laughs> that's, a, that's actually a question that we tackle even in school, like in our game design 101 course, where we even define what is a game. And I feel like everybody has a different definition as to what a game really is. Because what could be a game for me may not necessarily be what a game is for, some, for anybody else. Um, but game design really is about the design of the interactions that you're going to be having within a game. So that goes that goes anywhere from the systems that you're doing. So for example, like a combat system, how is the player gonna swing a sword or how are they gonna shoot a gun? Like what buttons do they press? Things like that. Um, it can be that or it can literally be um, like a puzzle design. That's also part of, of, of being a game designer. So building like something as simple as a lock and key puzzle where you have to go find the key and bring it to the door like understanding the constraints and the rule sets that you want to build around that puzzle where the player cannot find a key from a different place and bring it over and have it work on that door so those are like the little nuances that that you do as a game designer but there's a certain principles that we follow um, and it's based on game theory. So it's really, it's really all like a, a big field. Um, it's, it's not, it's fairly new. I would say like game theory and game design is something that's maybe, maybe in the seventies and eighties was really when it was starting to blossom. Um, but a lot of game design terms and theories and things like that are fairly new. So it's still ex being explored, right? There's no like a, hard facts like in film and film theory things are very factual and you follow rules when you make a movie versus in a game it's a little bit more uh i guess free form because it's a new experience and people are always trying to redefine what a game is and what interactions are and things like that but a game designer really is all about designing interactions 
and it can be as simple as point and click or as complex as having a whole battle system. It's really dependent on what you're trying to create and who your client is. Because even if you go to a museum, there are some, you we would call them games, but they're interactions where you touch something on a, on a touch screen or you move something and it, and it reacts to you. Um, oh. Yeah. So it's beyond what you would even think of. Um, well, that's really cool. The possibilities yeah. are endless. Whenever you're d talking about game design in the 80s, though, I kind of think of that new Netflix movie where it's like choose your own experience. Did you hear about that one? Oh, was it the Black Mirror Bandersnatch yes. movie? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it reminds me of that. I know it's not like that, and it's probably way different, but that's kind of what I like picture when you think way back in the 80s when it first started. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, that's really cool. Um, so let's see. So Mike told me that you um, do a lot of design around race and gender and that sort of a thing. How can games revolve around that and what sort of work do you do in that field? So with um, race and, and gender, so... Um, in that program that Mike uh, directed at University of Pittsburgh, my whole thesis project in, inside that program, because it was a year-long research project that we all did, um, my project concentrated on gender roles in video games, both inside games and in the games industry. So I looked at like how many women characters there are in games and if there are any at all and how are they portrayed and are they like pieces that are added to the narrative like are they characters that you really can engage with or is it just like set dressing and like they are just meaningless uh like just eye candy for example um so I did that and then I did also like a, a study on how um women um I guess uh are represented in the industry so like how many programmers are women in the games industry how many designers are there and things like that and that was back in 2012, 2013. So um, things have changed since. Now that I'm in the industry, I can testify that that has changed. But back then, um, it was way less women. And I would say, I think my in my research, it was less than a percent of women were programmers and about 8% were designers. Um, so that's like very, very tiny. <laughs> um, so my whole research was just investigating all of that. Um, and it was really interesting to see um, how things have changed since then, because they really, really have. Um, and a lot of scholarship programs are now available for women or in, and young women and professional women who are interested in being in games and giving them opportunities to go to like the game developers conference or um, giving, giving them leadership roles in like the women in games uh, groups and things like that. So, um, that's, that's how everything started for me in regards to race and gender. It was that paper, that research project that I wrote, which actually motivated me to pursue game design as a graduate degree. Yeah. So, um, but in regards to that in my work, you know, um, right now, like diversity and inclusion is a very hot topic inside the games industry. Um, some people take it negatively. Some people take it positively. Um, and I would say there's more positive when it comes to the developer world. So people That's who are in industry. <laughs> yeah. Um, and and I'm, I'm, I'm in that space and I see a lot more conversation about, you know, how can we make our characters not cis white males? What can we do to really be authentic and genuine about 
uh, creating characters that are, you know, different than what we usually do. So I'm because I'm a designer on my team right now, it's something that I'm consciously, you know, asking other designers about, right? So I have that power um, right now, which is great. Um, but it's difficult sometimes. And I was saying even in the bigger companies where you as a designer, you don't really have that much power over what ends up being in the game. It's all about senior leadership and executives who make those final calls. And you can be completely against what they want and they will put what they think they it'll work. You know what I mean? So it's, it's definitely a constant battle that happens across the board in all different games, whether it's digital, whether it's board games, whether it's card games, because those are still being designed. Like um, people always forget about analog games, so they do exist. Yeah. Um, and in uh, and, and my personal work, at least, aside from the, the Cindy studio that I work for, for my nine to five, in my personal work, I really am trying to see how I can merge game design and preservation of cultures. That's like a big passion of mine. So I went on this journey about two years ago to try to to find out more about my roots. Um, and I'm from Puerto Rico. I was born and raised there. So I'm conscious that, yes, I'm Latinx. I'm, I'm of Latin descent. And, of course, that, that means that I am partially Spaniard and I have European blood in me. But what are the other groups that make up my DNA? And Because in Puerto Rico... Back in the 1700s, 1800s used to be a slave port, like slavery in, in Puerto Rico and the Dominican Republic, because I'm also half half Dominican. So um, all around the Caribbean, there's uh, the ports of slavery and the plantation. So I know that there's West African blood in me, and I know that there's indigenous blood in me, because that's how you get the mix of people on the island. When the conquistadors came to the island, they you know, they did what they did to our indigenous people and then they brought in the slaves and then they intermingled. So all of us Puerto Ricans and Caribbean peoples are a mix of all of that blood. So I was very interested to find out more about who I was and what it meant to be Puerto Rican and how I can, I don't know, express that in my craft and game design. So I decided to um, really talk to the community, the indigenous community on the island, and figure out how I can make a game to preserve our culture that's being lost. Um, we don't really have a language, um, and the the indigenous peoples of the Caribbean were mainly of the Arawak tribe. And if you trickle down, one of the subgroups of the Arawak is the Taino people, which are the people of Puerto Rico and the Dominican Republic. Um, so trying to tap into that community and seeing what can I do with my craft to to make sure that our stories are preserved and they're told across generations in a digital format and in a way that they can be digestible for for people all over the world because I don't want just Puerto Ricans to know about their history. I want the world to know about the Taino people and, and our language and our artifacts and our, our and our lore, our mythology and folklore. Um, so I've been diving deep the past year and a half, just researching, reading a lot, educating myself about the history of the people and, and the culture and talking to different elders in, in different tribal councils to see how they can help me uh, create this thing. If I can get some grants from like um, indigenous groups to be able to develop this because making games is expensive and it's very time consuming. 
Um, so would so, you make a game about Puerto Rican? What would the game be about? So the game right now, the concept that I have um, is about uh, a girl that goes on a journey to find the Taino spirit. So in our in our country, in Puerto Rico, there is there are two indigenous parks. They're ceremonial parks, and they're pretty much kind of like mini museums. It's 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 out in the fields, and there are rocks. There there are petroglyphs that have these uh, ancient carvings that the Taino like drew on these rocks. Um, and you can go to the park and you can see those. And then there's a very small museum that has like more artifacts like blades and pottery and things like that, that you can see. Um, so this one park that we have in Puerto Rico, it's called Caguana, which is, um, right in the Valley uh, of Puerto Rico, almost in the center of the Island. And that's a special park because the petroglyphs are like the only artifacts really that we have that are like tangible like that in, on the island, aside from the pottery and stuff, which is a little bit different. This is like really like ancient things that are that are very present. And um, one of the sad things is that um, because they are outside and Puerto Rico is a tropical, humid weather, right? Um, the rocks are deteriorating and nobody is really doing anything about preserving them. I guess, you know, the Puerto Rican government, and rightly so, I mean, we had like a big hurricane that almost wiped out the entire island. Right, and um, the resources are probably still 100% going to absolutely. that to this day. Isn't it supposed to be years and decades before it's... Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So imagine, you know, like like seeing the loss of all of that stuff. Like um, I spoke to one of the tour guides at the park and he was like, I don't think, like, give it about 10 years and like these petroglyphs are just going to be like just big rocks like these these glyphs are going to be gone uh, because they're just going to erode away so that's what really like made me think is like wow what can i do you know i don't i don't have money to preserve any of this i don't have the power to make moves with the government or anything like that and even the taino community within puerto rico isn't even recognized as an indigenous group like they're still trying to fight for that identity um so in making this game, what I would really love to do, because um, I, of course I sat down with the community and they actually told me that the reason why the rocks are fading away, even though us as like people, we, we, there's scientific reason behind why these rocks are fading and eroding because of the weather and, and the sandpaper effect that the humidity and the rain and the dust all have on the rocks because they're outside. But, um, to them, it's spiritual. Like the rocks are being erased because the spirits have left. Therefore, the meaning of those glyphs um, is ceasing to exist because the spirits are no longer there. So to me, that was fascinating. I was like, wow, like these nuances are all so different because it's like we live, we live in different worlds. It's like our societies are completely different even though we're on the same island, which I found super interesting. So I decided then that the game was going to be about a girl who journeys through the spirit world. She has like an out-of-body experience and she traverses the spiritual world to find the spirits and bring them back to the park to bring it back to life. So it's, it's a very much like an adventure game. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely an adventure type of game where oh my you, God, start, that just you start off in the park and you, you, you engage with a rock and it's just like you're thrown into like another dimension and it's like you're the chosen one you are here you are needed and um, 
go on a journey to interact with these spirits and convince them. So there's different spirits. There's a spirit of, you know, uh, mother nature and there's a spirit of the almighty one and there's a spirit of fire like there's so many spirits that and and deities that i could um have in the game but obviously i can't have all of them i had to pick like the the and highlight the ones that are i think are most important um but i had to really personify them so I, i've been going through a journey of like doing a lot of research talking to the community and seeing what is feasible for me to do and then from that I have hired like 3D artists, concept artists, people that have been creating stuff for me so that I can make a demo because that's all I want. I want to make a small demo that shows the idea of what the game will be. And then that way I can like kick start it or, or get some, a grant to continue developing it or something like that. But it's, it's been taking me a long time wow. and you can't even imagine how difficult it is to come home like from work where you're making a game and you're on the computer all day, and the last thing that I want to do when I get back home is make another game. <laughs> right. You're like, I, I need so a break. exhausting. <laughs> I but I have, I have to do it. At some point, I have to motivate myself and be like, you know, at least an hour like, or two, three times a week so that I can like start working on it. Yeah, but yeah, that's an idea. <laughs> I understand. Um, I know it's not on that scale, but I do understand. All day I work in video production, and I come home and I do this podcast a few times a week. And so, like at the end, it's like hard to keep motivated. But that is such yeah. a good idea. I like would love to see that happen. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so so far so good. I've had a lot of people um, um, ask me if they could help in any way. Um, like friends making music and audio effects and things like that to help me create this demo, um, which has been super helpful. And I got also very fortunate. Um, there, there is a conference in New York in the summer called the Game Developers of Color Expo. And NPR happened to go there and they went to a panel of mine because um, I was on a panel about Latinx uh, developers and I was talking about my game. Um, and they approached me and they did a little interview and they said, Hey, like, as soon as you start like developing it, like, please keep us updated because we would love to do a, a piece about like your development process and like what you went through in creating this game. And I was like, Oh, that's great. Wonderful. But I, I haven't made anything yet. So <laughs> how's the fundraising for it been going? Do you know what it's going to cost you to make something like that? And how do you go about that? Well, to do that, I would really have to have the demo first because though in order to really have a breakdown of what I would need, I would really need to understand what the story arc is going to be, how long the gameplay will be, and then from there pan, pan out what the necessities are. Um, but I'm, I'm not quite sure like the total amount of money that I would need to budget it. I would have to sit down with somebody that's a bit more experienced than me to try to break that down. Um, and I hope one of my mentors can, can help me with that at some point. Um, but right now, the most important part to me is figuring out what we call the core game mechanic, which means what is that interaction that you're going to do throughout the game that is going to be the, the core, the heart of the game. So I've been trying to design that like on paper just figuring out what would feel cool, what would be interesting, what would really like bring home that idea of preserving a culture. And after going to the Game Developers Conference like two weeks ago, I, I went to a panel about narrative. It was like narrative games. So it was a narrative game showcase. And it was like 
all these interesting things that developers and designers are doing with words, with story, and not just making these linear, um, very binary stories. It was like very interesting stuff that they're creating. And that like motivated me to think about, well, how, how can I make a, a core game mechanic that is about the indigenous language? How can I use the language and speaking it in like seeing symbols? How can I do that to interact with the world? So that's the conclusion that I just came to like two weeks ago. So I think, um, that's going to be my core game mechanic and that's going to take some time to refine and tweak and figure out what I can do with it because our language doesn't really exist. It was, it was revived, um, by a, a linguistic doctor in Puerto, in Puerto Rico who, who she leads this whole indigenous community, but she revived the whole language to the point where she modernized it. Um, so she wrote a whole like workbook and the kids, there's uh, there's a few schools in this indigenous community that are learning the language. So there's kids who are becoming fluent um, and things like, for example, the months of the year, uh, numbers, uh, the um, hours of the day, like things like that that are more modernized. Um, she has like um, re, I, I wouldn't say re she revived it, but she also like created it. Um, and I think she, she adopted a lot of the language that we already know of from indigenous peoples in the Caribbean and kind of adapted it to figure out since she's, she's a linguist, so she would know, um, what it might be similar to what it might be similar to. Yeah. Um, so that's what I'm going to do next. Just try to choose some of those words and figure out what I can do with some gameplay and what feels good, what looks good. But I need to talk to the community a little bit more about that. Do you plan on going back to talk to them soon? Yeah, I'm hoping to. Right now, unfortunately, I work is, is kind of stressful now. So I, I have to probably wait until like later on in the year. Um, but I'm hoping to take like a a weekend to go down there and speak to them, bring my ideas. Um, they're also on like Facebook and stuff and I can call them up. Like that's not an issue. I can always, I have communication pathways with them. Um, but it's nice to sit down and actually show them art and get their reaction face to face. Cause it's not the same when you're on the phone and talking ideas, they get super excited. Like they're super, super excited. Um, but it's, different when you have something tangible that you can show and like their like eyes light up and they're like wow this is incredible like the kids are gonna love this so um we'll see how that goes because it's, it's a process that is beyond cool um wow um well I want to see it if it ever comes so please let me know <laughs> um, thank you yeah I will good um so why do you feel like games like this are so vital with like positive messages or focusing on culture or past tradition or even modern day like gender rights like why are those developing even games and concepts in themselves about that why do you think that's so important well you know there's like for me as a designer I find it important because there's it, it, it stinks that there's so many connotations to what games are that people just have because of the media and um, all that they think that games are, are just entertainment. Like that's what games are. You do it as a hobby, you do it as, you know, something for leisure. Um, but 
unless you're in the industry or you're in the community, you don't open your eyes to all the different avenues that games live in. So there's games for health and medicine. There's games for simulation and training, like even just basic, like corporate type of stuff you can learn in a game and train people in. Um, and in this space about even like games as documentary or games as activism, um, these things do exist because at the end of the day, games are a form of media. The only difference between a game and a film is that one is passive and one is active. So games have a lot of power because you actually have to engage with some type of input, whether it be a button, whether it be um, a, con a controller, whether it be something physical that is mapped out using technology to transfer to a screen. Um, there's so much power in the fact that you have to do something in order to get this system to react. So um, I find it so I find it vital that we talk about race and we talk about you know social issues that we talk about politics in games because at the end of the day, us designers we're part of the society we're 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 people that live in it and we want sometimes to say our piece about what's going on in the things that we in the in the world that we see and the challenges and problems that we see in our society, in our in our own personal spaces, and us as having experiences, all of that transfers to the games that we make. So I see more and more games that are having politics, games that are um, touching on race issues, um, especially in the independent space, because there's more freedom to explore those types of topics right it's less you're not, like you're not bound to that like yeah. business model or, or or whatever um but there's games like for example um i have a class at records that i teach online called uh, social impacts of video games and um i took the class and i had to reformat it um because i view it through the lens of a, of not just like you know academia but also like I'm a game designer. Like I see things a little bit different than just a, a, a common gamer would see them. So one of our units in that class is is about like games and politics, and another one's about games and race and games and gender. And I have my students play games um, in the indie space that deal with those issues. And one of them is called We Are Chicago. And We Are Chicago is a game about a black family living in, in, in Chicago in an urban space and living a normal life and how some stereotypes are imposed on them because of their skin color. And like you play the game and it's just like it opens your eyes about some of these things that you would never be able to understand unless you are of the black experience. But game that game is so powerful because it because you're engaging with it, you are almost seeing that through in the shoes of, of somebody who lives that experience every day, you wow. know? Oh yeah. It's, it's a powerful game. There's another game called spent. You could, you could debate. Some people debate whether this is a game or not, but spent is actually like a point and click like website that you go to. And it was a marketing, uh, it was like a marketing game created um by a city i forgot what city it was but it was a game that commented on homelessness and the the challenges that low-income families go through um on their like monthly like day-to-day -day, uh walk of life so in the game 
you have 30 days and they're mapped out on the side of your other web browser and you go through all these problems like for example your car broke down but you only have like $1,500 for the month do you fix your car or do you leave it as is and start taking public transit so you you make those decisions and you see like the budget that you have just decrease every single day and the whole point is to make it to the 30 days and it, it's like super stressful to play that game because you would never think like one of the choices is like your child is sick, but you don't have enough money to take them to the doctor because you don't have health insurance. So are you going to stay home with them and help them get better? Or are you going to send them to school sick? Like those are like real life decisions that people have to make and that you don't think about because you're not in that position. Um, but it speaks volumes at, at, to how simple because it's just it's just text and buttons and you make decisions it's super simple but it's super impactful when you play it um so there are just so many different topics that we can really dive into um with games and it and every single one is so valid regardless of whether it'll make you money or not who cares if you are crafting an experience that really has something to say it's gonna be valuable to people you just need to throw it out there and see what happens. Um, and I'm always uh, of that mindset of like, let's try to be as genuine about our human experience as possible, no matter what game that we're making. And so be conscious about um, who you're having in your game, where they are from. If this person is from a specific ethnic group or a specific race, let's do research about those things. Let's be authentic in the way that we are crafting these narratives and, and these characters and these um, uh, experiences and worlds that we're building. Um, and even to the point of accessibility, um, which is an, another hot topic right now in the games industry, because Xbox created the adaptive controller. They they marked it out. I don't know if you if you saw the commercial in the Super Bowl about the adaptive controller. No. So the adaptive controller. Oh yes. So you, now I know what you're saying, white, but you should it's tell like the story. A white rectangle. Okay. You should tell the so, story anyway. <laughs> okay, cool. So um, accessibility has become a hot topic because. We are, now we are aware because of social media that there are players and gamers out there who have amputations, who may have colorblindness, who cannot engage with games as a normal abled person will be able to. They cannot press buttons on a controller. They cannot necessarily move a mouse and touch keys on a keyboard. How are we going to create uh, inputs for these people so that they can still play and be engaged in the things that they really love. So uh, Xbox created this controller. It's called the adaptive controller and um, anybody can use it. Um, so I saw in the Super Bowl commercial, like um, these uh, children who were they had their hands amputated and they were able to play a fighting game with the adaptive controller because it, I, I think it's like um, sensor based so you can map out what you want to do because it's a controller. So you can map out what each area will do. And then based on that, you just press it and, and, and like stimulate it. And I thought that was incredible. That's a really great opportunity. Um, so in my job, just this week, like literally three days ago, um, somebody made an argument of, well, we should just stick to mouse and keyboard and not use a controller. Um, and we were th talking about using an Xbox One controller because that's 
pretty much the newest generation of controller right now for PCs, the easiest one to hook up. Um, and I argued and I said, if we definitely have both, if we map our game's controls to be on the Xbox One controller, a a disabled or a, per, a disabled person or someone that cannot use a regular controller can easily plug in their adaptive controller and play our game. And I was like, that's super powerful. And we are definitely eliminating a whole slew of people from playing our game if we don't have the option of controls. Um, so that was something that I pushed and lo and behold, because I care about it and because I have the power on my design team, we are keeping that as an option. Another thing, because I'm slightly colorblind, um, in the green spectrum, I had really hard time deciphering like neon greens. And that's a huge issue in a lot of first person shooter games because a lot of the icons that let you know where things are, are like neon green. I have such a problem and it sucks because I love playing those games. Yeah. Um, so the first game that I saw that had an option for you to change the settings for colorblindness was Destiny 2. Um, and I was able to change the markers so that they were not neon green, they became purple and it was so much easier for me to see. Um, so that was another thing this week that I spoke to our artist about because he's creating all these user interface designs for our game. And I was like, listen, we need to have options so that if there are players that are colorblind, they can switch on and off certain things or at least have alternative colors that they can use for things so that they can play the game. It's easier for them to play. Uh, another thing that we talked about was black background with white text. That's like terrible design for people that have migraines and things like that. So I was like, can we have options where the backgrounds can be different colors and our text can be different colors? We don't have to give the player the option to pick whatever color they want because that's tedious, but can we have a set of three options that we can have people sort through so that they're most comfortable playing our game? So see all those things that you wouldn't really think about, but me, because I live it, that experience and I'm exposed to it, I think about it and I bring it to the table. That's and why that's diversity what, is important. <laughs> <laughs> that's why diversity is important and that's why we need more people of different like life experiences different races different on the on the gender spectrum we need people from different countries and different languages and even people who are not gamers like i don't identify myself as a gamer because i do not play games every single day i am not in like the geek nerd culture space. Like I don't identify with it. I didn't grow up with Star Wars. I have never played Dungeons and Dragons like a lot of my peers have. Like I grew up on like novellas and like being with my family. That's what we grew up with. It was more important for me to sit down at dinner with my family and talk for two hours than it was for me to go to my room and be by myself listening to music. I didn't even have a TV in my room growing up. We only had one TV at my house and it was in the living room. Um, but that experience, bringing that to my table, to the table in the design team, like I see things and design things so much more differently than my peers. Because when you start exposing yourself to these things like Dungeons and Dragons and I play a lot of World of Warcraft and I do all these things, you all of a sudden start boxing your designs in to fit those things that you think are good game design and then you craft those experiences and that's why you see so many games right now that look and feel very similarly 
because everybody is exposed to the same stuff, right? But if you bring somebody in, let's say we have a developer from Guatemala or a developer from, Nic I don't know, Colombia, and you bring them to the United States and you set them at the, our design table, their design ideas and perspective are going to be a hundred times different than mine and everybody else in the room. And that's what makes games colorful. When you start bringing those people in and giving them this design power over things and ultimately allowing them to like uh, descent, like ascend the ladder of leadership. Because I think at the end of the day, that's what we're really striving for. It's not just being like a mid-level designer and staying there for the rest of my life, but becoming a, a lead designer and a senior designer and becoming creative director and all the way going up to become an executive of the company. That's when you really will start seeing a lot of change because your values as an executive are going to trickle down. And all of a sudden... All of a sudden, your entire studio is going to have a meeting about gender dynamics in the game because it's important to the to the leadership, right? Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Man, Sorry. that was like no, a huge that is, no. I love that. I love deep thoughts like that. This is exactly what the podcast is for. So I really appreciate <laughs> you going there. Um, but why game design? You say you don't identify as a gamer. So, like, how did you get into this profession, and like, what got you interested in that? Well, I always loved playing games, even though I didn't identify myself as a gamer. I actually tweeted out just a couple of days ago at, because I went to PAX East, which is like a really big game convention in Boston every year. And I do not like being there because I feel like so out of place. It's just like, look at all these people like like loving all these games. And I'm here like, I'm just here for a panel. Like, get away from me. There's too many people here. Um, but I wrote a tweet about how I I, I don't like I would rather go to a concert like I grew up on like heavy metal and like punk and all that stuff. So I was like, I, I wrote in my tweet, I was like, I would rather throw myself in a mosh pit than go to a convention. Like I am that different than like people around me because it's just like my lived experience is just way different. But even though I love I love playing games, I love making them and being analytical and critical about all this stuff. Um, I don't identify myself as a gamer because that's not I don't live and breathe games. I don't go on Kotaku and IGN and all these other game news outlets and like read articles every day. I don't like own like hundreds of games that I sift through. I don't play a game. I don't even remember the last time I played a game from start to finish that was like 90 hours long. I don't remember the last time I did that. Like all the games now are like the three, four hour experiences that I can do in one sitting type of stuff. Um, but the way that I got into it really was because of that research project that I told you about in I3 that I wrote, I wrote that paper on like gender roles and dynamics inside the games industry and in games. And me and my team, so there was a team of four people. Um, there was me, two other women, and a, a dude. The dude disappeared. I haven't heard from him in forever, but I stay in contact with the other two, two women. One of them ended up, uh, even though she's in information systems, she is working at Blizzard right now, which is one of the major game companies. Um, and I am now like a game designer in the industry in an indie studio. And I would say that our project motivated us to go into that space. And it was because we saw the problems. And I was like, you know what? We can make a difference. 
we can we can get into the industry and change it from the inside. Let's do that. And that's why I got into into games, into game design, because I was like, if I don't see the change, I'm going to be the change that I want to see. And I want to be the inspiration for people like me to come into the industry. Um, and so far, so good. And it has come to the point where I am. I was able last last year. I was able to co-found the Latinx and Games group. So um, we are an official group under the IGDA. So the IGDA is the Independent Game Developers Association. So it's kind of like this overall global group that um, like you pay your dues, like you become a member of the association. Um, so we're under the umbrella. We, we service the Latinx community not just in the United States, but across all Central South America and the Caribbean. Um, so I became involved in that because I was like, okay, cool. Now that I'm in the industry and I, I have a role and I'm a professional, now I want to give back. So it's like I want people like me that look like me that understand my experience to come into the industry as well. So um, we have grown a lot, like definitely like two, three times since over the past year. And now we're trying to make moves, talking to people like Central South America and the Caribbean to see how we can partner up to make workshops, make events, um, create a resource library, create mentorship programs that we can have to link up inexperienced students or just um, people who uh, have studied game design or are game designers but don't have the professional experience yet, how we can link them up with people here who do have that experience to have a resource that they can tap into, um, you know, send them their resume, um, help them with like feedback on the games that they're making, things like that. So I, that's the space that I am right now. It's like, sure, I have a job, I'm making my own stuff, but no, I also want to to be a resource to to people that need it. So we're working really hard with that because it's like moving mountains when it comes to that type of volunteer work because um, big companies won't help you unless you're like an, a nonprofit. And because we're under the ITDA, it's like there's a lot of like weird like logistics and administrative stuff. And it's just like, can we just all help each other? Because at the end of the day, like at the end of the day, we just want to give people resources. That's it. Right. We don't want to make money off of this or anything like that. But um, it's been it's been difficult doing all of that, but it's been super rewarding at the same time because we have seen the longing for that type of community. Um, every time we have a panel, like other Latinx people are like, wow, like I have been searching for a Latinx group in games and I'm so glad I found you guys. Like, thank you for what you're doing. And that really warms your heart because we do this like aside, like after our job, we don't get paid. And we even sometimes put in our own pocket money. It's like a nonprofit almost. Yeah. 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 And um, it's, it feels really nice to know that like, you know what, even though it's a sacrifice, even though it's very hard and sometimes we have cried and gotten frustrated with some of the things that have been thrown at us, um, people really see the value and, with every passing day, it's like, you guys, like, we are not doing this in vain. Like, it'll get somewhere. But there are going to be bumps on the road for sure. Right. And I also, I did my research a little bit. So I saw on, like, a website that you have 
been involved with like youth groups. Um, can you describe what you do currently that helps empower younger individuals who are in interested in design? Is that what you're talking about now or is that something separate? It's something separate. So that's another thing that I do as well. So I teach game design and development to kids 12 to 18. So that's an initiative under the indie studio that I am right now. Um, that initiative is called Make Room. So it's part of the company, it's under the company umbrella. Um, but what we do is offer after school programs. We partner with different schools, different organizations, um, and we offer our curriculum for game design and development. So the idea is to build a studio. So we, we have the, the students that enroll into the program, they go through an introduction curriculum that teaches them the basics about game design, the basics about working with a game engine and basics about working with each other and being able to come up with an idea and having consensus, doing teamwork and all of that. And then when they get to the point where they have all the knowledge that they would need to start making their own game, then they pitch. So they will pitch their idea. Us, the instructors will green light that idea and then we'll help them build it. So they make games like, every the curriculum is about 10 weeks long so every 10 weeks or so they make new games or very small pieces of games um and that's what i what i've been doing with 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 our company um aside from just doing game design and game centered uh courses at like the college level at Rutgers, so that's something that i really like to do i always like to to teach i think it's important um to to also help the younger generation understand that like games are cool they're fun but if you really want to learn how to make them it takes discipline and it takes dedication and when you're enrolled in our program you you have to let everybody know hey i'm not gonna i'm gonna be out because it's a team project so when one person's not there the whole team hurts because there are things that are just not gonna get done um so we're trying to also help them figure out what production tasks, like um, things that other fields, other STEM fields use, like Agile and Scrum project management, we use that in games. Wow. So we expose the kids to that production cycle of what a sprint looks like. You have two weeks to get to this milestone. What are the tasks that you need to do? How are you going to prioritize those tasks so that you can reach your milestone and show off your game? Because we have playtest days. So they'll go in with what they have on their playtest day and everybody plays it and they'll give them feedback of like, this stuff's working, this stuff is good. Maybe you should explore this other stuff. Um, so the same exact things that we do in our own game studio, the same game development process cycle, they the kids do themselves. Of course, at a much like high risk, there's no high risk, right? Because they're not getting graded or anything like that. But it's really trying to teach them um, all those different things that they would need to be part of a team, to be a good team leader or a good team member. Just anything that you would need for any field, like we, we, we let the kids experience that in the program. That's amazing. Um, kind of shifting back into gender-related things, mm -hmm. because this is a, I like to think of this as an empowering podcast. I try to uplift young women. Um, so if aspiring female designers are listening, what tips would you give them given, coming into this career path? And if you can briefly, because I'm sure it's like a deep dive, but could you briefly touch on like 
what it's currently like to be a female in the gaming industry. I know you said it's improved recently. So mm-hmm. those two things, like aspiring women and what, it, what it's like to enter into this field as a woman. So what it's like to enter, um, definitely it's like any other STEM field. Like there's not that many of you. Like there's not a lot of women. In my studio, out of the 25-ish people, there's three women. Um, and I know that the bigger the company is, there may be more women. And it so happens to be that a lot of those roles are in like HR, um, and more administrative, but you know, uh, women programmers and women designers do exist. I have met them. I have been in programs with them. Um, and there's a lot of like new scholarships and opportunities for women who are interested to enter the industry to do that. One example is like the Oculus Launchpad, which is like a program. It's like a two-day workshop or something like that. Oculus flies you over to their headquarters and you get to do a workshop for two days. They pay for everything. Um, Those type of programs are starting to like pop up by different companies. Microsoft has one. Um, Google has one. There's so many tech companies and game studios who have these programs. Um, But I would say um, definitely if you want to enter the space, just know that, yes, you are in the minority, um, but that change is happening. And I feel like people are starting to get more receptive to the idea that um, that it doesn't, it, it's not about, like being game designer is not about coding and engineering, because I feel like that's like a really big like veil that people think it's like, oh, to make games, I need to be good at math. I need to be good at programming. If I don't understand these things, I could never be a game designer. That's not the case because my senior game designer at my company doesn't know how to program. Really? <laughs> and he has, wow. He has, yes. Because that's what I picture in my head. Oh, no. My senior game designer, he worked at a Sony PlayStation for like 12 years. Um, and he, he does not know how to program. He can design. And he can use the tools, but he does not know how to program. It's, and it's really funny because, like, sometimes I'll be like, he'll be like, hey, Lynn, can you make this thing? Because the engineers, like, they can't do it. They don't have the time. But I know that you have the skill set. And I was like, sure, I'll make the thing, you know, and we can use it for our prototype. So it's pretty awesome that in that regard, I'm, like, 30 years younger than him. But I have more skill sets in some areas than him, which is, like, really funny and interesting. Um But I would say definitely if you are a young woman who loves games and you are thinking about pursuing that as a career path or maybe you are or maybe already have a career and you're thinking about switching, um, when it comes to that, when it's about switching, I always recommend people to try to get a certification in some type of like development because that way you can do it at your own pace. So, for example, um, in the game engine that we use, um, it's an open source game engine called Unity. And Unity has a certification program and it's a course that you take online and it's self-paced. And then you have your certification and that approves you. It's like, hey, I know how to develop games for this specific platform, which is awesome to have on your resume. And it's really a really good voucher for you. Um, But um, if you're transitioning, I always tell people, Think about going to graduate school and getting a degree in game design because it really teaches you all those pillars that you wouldn't otherwise know about. Um, 
I wouldn't have been able to be in games if I didn't have my degree. And there's a lot of competition now because there's so many programs all over the world that are starting to start game design programs. So there's a lot of young people who are pursuing that as a bachelor. And like, if you already have a bachelor's in something else, what will make you stand out is that MFA in game design or that MFA in interactive media, because that it gives you more skills and it actually provides you a network that you wouldn't have if you didn't go to school for it. Um, so that's all what I, what I recommend for people that are switching careers um, and just do your do research like don't just say oh the best school for making games is you know university of utah or university of southern california because they're like top three like don't listen to that like every school's program has um very specific um i guess expertises so university of southern california is very focused on like narrative and storytelling and that's because the game school is underneath the cinema school, it's the film school. So that's why story is so important because of a film versus for example, uh, the game program at DigiPen, which is in Washington, they focus on engineering. So that's all about building your own game engine and it's very, lots of math, lots of engineering. So you'd really need to do your research as to what programs curriculum, what, what the program's mission, their vision, if that fits what you want to do in your future, right? And that'll help you decide what program fits best. Um, but for people that want to pursue to make games, I always say it's really easy if you know the resources. Like it's really easy to start if you know about the resources that exist. So the internet is great. I learned a lot of development from the internet. Um, YouTube has a ton of game chat, like, channels that are specific just for tutorials on how to make specific things so you can use the unity game engine or the unreal game engine and there's like series on like how to make your first first person shooter in unreal and you'll go through like your own self-paced tutorial yeah there's a lot of stuff online um and it's totally free and of course there are paid things like udemy.com there's some game design, game development courses that you can take on, on there. Some of them are like 10 bucks, some of them are 20 bucks. But again, self-paced and you make a game, they give you all of the art and everything and you just go through step-by-step -step process and you learn how to do it. Um, and that really opens up the doors once you start learning all those things little by little. Um, then you start coming up with your ideas and once you know the basics and you know where to look for more resources, then you can start making your own game ideas that you can craft by yourself. You don't need any help. And you may need help from other people. You can search online or you can link up with other game developers in your area. I always, um, I'm a big fan of looking for the IGDA groups. So again, IGDA is the Independent Game Developers Association. And every major city or usually every major city has a chapter that you can go to. So they have events, they have meetups, socials. If not, usually they have a Facebook group or a Twitter account that you can follow and see what they're up to. Meetup, I heard Meetup is a great place as well to find other game developers and designers in the area. Um, and then we have things called game jams, which is like the game version of a hackathon. Oh, wow. and you literally make a game in a certain amount of time. So That's anywhere, fun. Anywhere from 24 hours to a week to a month. It depends on the game jam. Cool. Um, but yeah, 
That's um, cool. Game design is all about like building your own portfolio. Like, it, as long as you have a portfolio to show what games you make, that's really what's going to sell you as a game designer and a developer. That's really cool. Well, awesome. If, if someone wants to find you and like stay in contact with you to one, maybe ask you to be a mentor or even network with you and also maybe to play your game one day that you develop. Yeah. Um, well, I know you have several, but uh, I'm especially interested in the Puerto Rico one. I think that sounds so fun. Thank you. Um, uh, where can we follow you? How can we find more details on you? So um, feel free to find me on LinkedIn and add me and message me on there. Um, I usually respond fairly quickly, and it's just my name, Elaine Gomez. Um, I should be pretty easy to find. There's not a lot of Elaine Gomez game designers out there. Um, and also on Twitter, I'm very active on Twitter. Um, and my handle is Chulatastic. Um, and I'll send you the information so you can post it somewhere. Yeah, I'll um, put it in the link below. So everyone should cool. go to the bio below. Yeah, so Chulatastic, that's where I live. I, I, um, I'm very outward and about some political things and things like that so spare warning I do cuss a lot too so if you don't like that I'm sorry um, well this podcast yeah it's not censored so you could have cut okay. if you wanted I try to. to I try to like be like have no potty mouth when I'm on podcast because you never know who's listening Maybe you don't like know it could be a younger yeah. one um, exactly. that I apologize for my previous episodes <laughs> <laughs> yeah but that's where I live LinkedIn um, and of course my email um, and that's just Elaine at created Boy com and I'm usually pretty responsive with with emails and things like that cool well awesome is there anything I haven't added to like something that's relevant to this conversation that you feel like is necessary that I didn't like think of that you think is necessary to say um I guess um the only thing that we really didn't touch on was like stem um yeah um so I guess um like game design and game development is part of the STEM field because we need technology in order to make games. Right. Um, pro programming is the foundation of how games work. However, not every person on the team programs because there's just different facets of the game development pipeline. So we have lawyers, we have HR, we have IT support, we have people who do like networking on like server stuff. We have the engineers and there's all different types of engineers. Um, and then we have the designers and the artists and even the artists themselves. There's like a bunch of different disciplines. There's environment art and then there's character art and then there's user interface art. So there's so many different types of artists as well. So um, I guess just to say that games are really interdisciplinary. Um, it doesn't have to be all about entertainment. I just found a website today that somebody sent me a, a startup company that makes games for uh doctors and hospitals so it's like to train doctors to do certain things and they use games to do that so um there's an avenue in it somewhere for you if you don't think that you like entertain like games as entertainment maybe you can do games for history or games for anthropology games for a documentary there's so many things that games fit in i, I wouldn't be able to list everything because it is infinite really yeah, the possibilities um, are truly endless. They're really endless. If you can make a movie or a documentary about anything, you can do the same thing with games. It's the exact same idea. Um, and people will play them. They, they will exist. Just like podcasts, too. Like There's podcasts about sleep. There's podcasts about games. There's 
podcast about murder mysteries. Like, there's podcasts about everything. And it's the same thing with games as well. You could definitely make a game about sleep. I have seen weird games, like, about putting on makeup, for example. Just well, like yeah, I remember shorts. as a little girl, there being, like, some really girly, like, Barbie games or mm-hmm. stuff like that, like, on the oh, old yeah. PCs that I could play. I think there was one, like, about just, like, a pony and how you could design, like, the pony to look a certain way. Oh, yeah, that's great. <laughs> yeah, I remember yeah. those types of games. Yeah. But I've seen the game about putting on makeup was, like, really, like, finicky, very prototypey looking, but it was, like, you had 10 seconds to put on makeup. So you had, like, all these different controllers, and it's just a mess. And the whole idea was just to be funny and, yeah. like, very, like, um, critical about, like, you know, it takes time to do your makeup, but sometimes you just don't care. <laughs> so um, <laughs> they are just little games, and that game is, like, just like a... 10 15 second game that you play but it's out there and people like enjoy playing it like over and over again so you never know but um but yeah definitely there's a definitely a place for any type of field within games as well so even if people do not want to pursue game design and development per se there's an avenue for um, a career path in games that is not related to making the game itself but just having the game studio operate, like HR and like law and things like that. Um, I've seen a lot of different games. I'm actually in the industry I'm in. I try not to talk about my nine to five, but we do, it's a medical industry and we do do similar things where it's interactive. So like it's out there. It is out there. It exists. And people make sometimes a lot of money depending on it. And I know the military does as well. Um, the military uses games for simulation for training. Well, that and makes I have, sense, yeah. I have some friends who work um, directly with uh, an institute that creates those type of games. And they get paid very, very well. Definitely do. I'm sure. Well, that's amazing. Um, I always like to wrap up every episode with a positive thing of what you're looking forward to this week. I know that's weird. It's random. It could be anything like pet, hanging out with your dog. What are you looking forward to most this week? What's like... The bright side of your week. Well, what I am looking forward to is to this weekend will be my first weekend that I'm actually home because um, I've been traveling to a lot of conventions and conferences the past couple of weeks. So I'll be, actually be home this week. So I am this weekend. So I'm looking forward to cleaning my house and cuddling with my cat. <laughs> Good. My That's cat was here I was too. I was for. trying to keep him quiet this whole time. <laughs> Yeah, my cat's just sleeping over there by the sofa. They've been very good. Much better than my cat. I've had to mute myself <laughs> half the time with this all. That's so funny. But yeah, I'm just looking forward to staying in because I've had a, a very rough and busy couple of weeks. Okay, well, good. I hope you're looking forward to that. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I really enjoyed this episode and I appreciate it. No, thank you for having me. Yay!